your message, Thinking, Thinking, Part 2. Because for some of us, for all of us, there are large portions of our life that we would need waste management to come in and clean up the dumpster. That we've been hoarding all the stuff, all the junk, all the lack of emotional stability and peace in our life, and we've just been hoarding it and holding on to it, and it's been holding us back. And there needs to be a release. And so I asked the Holy Spirit last week. We prayed over folks on Pentecost Sunday. What a powerful Holy Spirit encounter last Sunday and last Sunday evening. I pray that the flooding of the Holy Spirit would just overwhelm your hearts this Sunday. Amen. Would you leave the seat that you're in and greet people with the love of Christ? Welcome to Risen King Church. Did you stinking thinking part two? Stinking thinking part two. If we could put Exodus 16 on the screen, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And it says this. And then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin between Elam and Mount Sinai. And they arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. One month after leaving the land of Egypt. And there too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down fruit from heaven for you. In each day, the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. And I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And on the sixth day, they will gather food. And when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. And so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, by evening, you will realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And we're going to pause right there. Listen to this. A month goes by, it's passed by between the time Israel departed from Egypt to the time the nation reached the wilderness of sin. Water had already been a problem. We studied that a few weeks ago in Exodus 15. And now they'd begun to run out of food. And they were frightened to the extent that they began to think about the good old days back in Egypt. When they used to sing and eat. And they became discouraged before they had really even gotten started. Have you set out to do something in your life before? And have gotten discouraged? And you haven't even begun what you originally set out to do. See, they'd been on the road only a few days. And because they had missed a meal or two, they were ready to go back to the safe camps of Egypt. The growling stomach soon produced grumbling lips. Today I want you to see eight things that this passage shows us about complainers. Number one, complainers, complainers always find something to complain about. We could put the the slide up. There you go. Complainers always find something to complain about. Do you know that? If you don't know it, if you don't know it, it's because maybe you're a part of the problem. Verse 1 through 4 of chapter 16 reveals this. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. 
Verse 3 continues, And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Amazingly enough, the children of Israel have seemed to learn nothing from their past experience of God's faithfulness. So God brings the plagues, utterly destroys, crushes the land of Egypt in order for these people to be released. He then proceeds to open up an entire body of water over three miles wide for them to be able to walk through. But here's the problem. When you fall into self-pity, grumbling and complaining, then you forget faithfulness. You forget the good times and the good things that happen. It always happens. Think about divorce proceedings, right? If you ever go into a court case with a divorce proceeding, you forget the wonderful walk on the beach that you had, the loving moments and kisses and tender moments, the time that you first held your first child, the time that you met each other at the altar, all the love that you had at first, all of a sudden, poof, goes away. As you begin to grumble at each other by means of attorneys and judges. We forget faithfulness in favor of self-pity, grumbling, and complaining. We highlight the negative moments in our lives more than we highlight the positive moments. We have to admit all too often when faced with difficulties and problems, we cannot personally solve. We give into despair and complaint. If you can't immediately find a solution to the issue that is plaguing you, the very first thing that you turn to is complaint and despair. The truth is some of us make grumbling an art form. We grumble habitually. We only take off on Sundays, and sometimes that is. We grumble if we're caught in slow-moving traffic, if our meal at the restaurant is not delivered in a timely manner. See, lots of things really do make us grumble. I want you to notice with me some of the characteristics of complaining or grumbling people. Number two, grumbling is a gratitude problem. Grumbling comes as a response to pain or problems in life. We grumble because we think that we should experience pleasure rather than pain, prosperity rather than adversity. And whenever we are tempted to murmur and complain, we need to review the past and remember how the Lord has blessed us. Many of us are like that person who said, my car broke down and it cost me $400 to get it fixed, $400 that I didn't have. Well, let me tell you, you better thank God that at least you had a ride and some wheels that you could travel on why me lord after all i've been better than most why are you treating me this way why are you punish me this way and the tv went on the blink so does the dishwasher the clothes the dryer the lawnmower even the iron why me lord besides that why at my age should i still have financial problems why am i not financially set like other people that i know Why have you denied me opportunities of fame and fortune that you have given to others? Why me, Lord? See, when I find myself starting to think like this, it sometimes helps for me to ask the same questions about the other aspects of my life. Lord, what have I done that's so grand that you have blessed me with a car? What have I done that's so grand that you've given me a TV set, a clothes, and a dryer, a lawnmower, and an iron? Why did you give me all these things anyway, Lord? Why me? It's called reverse thinking. Lord, why did you permit me to be born in America with all its plenty? I could have been born in a poverty-stricken nation instead of rich America. Why me, Lord? 
Lord, why did you give me the opportunity to have a job when so many people who are just as deserving as I are without work? Why me, Lord? Lord, why did you give me good health? Others have died at my age of heart attacks or are crippled by accidents or disease. Why should I escape ill health when other religious people do not? Why me, Lord? Lord, why have you spared me from the sorrows that strike so many other families? Other wonderful people have lost close relatives, but I haven't. Why me, Lord? When I think of all the ways that the Lord has blessed me, though I don't deserve it, I wonder how I could possibly complain about the relatively insignificant things that go wrong in my life from time to time if I could only learn to count my blessings. You've got to remember what Jesus has done for you. When you were down and out, he saved you. Your life could have been a wreck. Your life could have been a wreck. So you went through a few months of without having a job. God provided. So you're going through a tough time now. Three months from now, two months from now, God will provide. It's a cycle. The problem is, is that we drown ourselves when the cycle is not going in our favor. But we praise and worship when it is. Number three, grumbling is a perception problem. The problem is that when we grumble, our perception is faulty. Grumbling causes us to distort facts. There is exaggerated memory of the past. The children of Israel exaggerated in their minds the benefits of Egypt. They said they sat by their flesh pots and all and ate all they wanted of a great variety of foods and meats. As slaves, the truth is, is that that could hardly be the case. They conveniently forgot about the lash of the slave master and the anguish of their hearts and the cry of their hearts and the prayer of their hearts to God to be set free as they did the backbreaking work of Pharaoh. Their perception of the imminent danger of of starvation was also greatly exaggerated. And we do it all the time, too. In our American culture, things are very much different from the rest of the world. When you live in a modern and a civilized culture, things are different from the rest of the world. We can afford to say things like, I've not had my french fries with my cheeseburger. I'm starving. But that cheeseburger could feed five children in Haiti. Because our perception shifts as our culture elevates. And you will perceive things as though they're not. It's why good memories that you have, you exaggerate. It's why folks that you knew that you loved, all of a sudden they weren't that good of a person. If somebody else were to evaluate them in their life, and everything that they did, hey, that's not really that good of a person. But for you, for you, because you love that person so dearly, they could have been the worst person in the history of the world. Their attitude could be gross and disgusting and nasty. But you will stand up in a funeral home and you will declare them to be the most wondrous person in the history of the world. Why? Because your perception of things, your memory of things shifts. Number four, grumbling is a contagious problem. 
According to verse 2, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained. What had, begun with, what had begun with only a few now had contaminated the whole entire congregation. Let me tell you something. If you are around people that grumble and complain, do me a favor. When you get home or when you're at your place of work, nudge them and tell you, would you be grateful for the things that you have? If they don't want to be grateful for the things that they have, that eventually, that contagious, nasty, grumbling, complaining, stinking, thinking spirit that is over them will migrate over to you in your life. And before you know it, you'll begin to say things that you didn't think that you could say before. Because complaining and grumbling is contagious. Number five, complainers already have failed the test. God responds gently and graciously to the complaining of the Israelites. Verse 4 says this. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. What an interesting announcement that is. I will meet your need for hunger, but the meeting of that need will bring another test. Have you found that to be true? I have. When we find ourselves in the midst of some predicament that we feel that we cannot escape, God says, I'll provide the way, I'll show you the way out. And we accept his answers. And by virtue of accepting his answers, we accept his new direction, which introduces us to a whole new set of tests. A whole new set of trials of a different kind. So while we're relieved of one wilderness problem, we gain a new one. According to verse 4, the daily gift was intended as a test. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Gathering manna was a test of their obedience. Number six, complainers are always looking for someone to complain. That's the truth. Complainers are always looking for someone to blame. I found it in my experience in pastoral ministry. When somebody's having a wrecked out life in other places of their life, then they will bring that and shift that here. And guess who's the nice target sometimes? I get to be the nice target of, of the issues that are going on in other places. Let me tell you something. Andy Stanley is a great guy. And I don't have a problem being a punching bag every once in a while. Because Jesus is my support. Andy Stanley is a great guy. He's a great speaker. And he says, the body of Christ, the body of Christ is just that, a human body. And a human body has a means of getting rid of its waste. And churches do too. And sometimes, if the projection and the blame and the issue that's going on in other places is projected and begins to happen here, then you've got some decisions and choices to make. You can either continue on and progress with the church or the body that you've planted yourself in or you have a decision to make. Or you can go elsewhere and be a complaining force somewhere else. But here's the thing. We don't want stinking thinking at Risen King Church. Enough churches have been divided. Enough issues have been caused. That's not to say that we don't want people with issues and problems. The problem is, is that there are people that have 
so much issues and problems that they don't just contain it in and of themselves. They spread the vile aspects of their character onto other people and they wound 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 and they hurt other people and they leave other people in despair. And there's a massacre that goes on. We won't allow that to happen at Risen King. Complainers are always looking for someone to blame. I'm going to tell you what. Sometimes I fall into a spirit of complaint. My wife could be in the other room. Just in the other room. Let's say I'm in the living room. She's in the laundry room. Something will fall. She just happened to walk by. It was not her fault. She didn't hit it. And all of a sudden I'm going, Crystal, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that this happened. Where's the remote? What did you do with this? What did you do with that? Why? Because we're always looking for someone to blame. We have certain natural reactions to ourselves. You ever been walking? Joe, stand up. Stand up. Come over here. You ever been walking, right? All of a sudden you're walking past someone. You may nudge them just a little bit. It doesn't even hurt at all. And you're like, ow. (laughs) You ever had that happen before? Or you stump your foot on something and it didn't even hurt. And you're like, oops, ow. It's like the natural reaction to things. We are naturally inclined in our flesh to complain and blame. They accused Moses of leading them into the wilderness to kill them. They thought that they were only venting their frustrations on a man like themselves. But in reality, they were grumbling against God. In verse 6, Moses tells the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Sometimes you, you're, you're, you're looking for somebody to blame, but really your complaint is that you're unsatisfied with the life that you're leading. And so if there's somebody that you've got to take a beef with, it's with God. God can handle your grief. God can handle your pain. If there's anywhere that you need to pour out your anger and your frustration, that you might have peace, it's during your time of prayer. God can handle those issues. God can handle your grumbling. As a matter of fact, if you tell me, Pastor, that doesn't sound very very faithful and very Christian-like, well, then tell me that we got to take the Psalms out of the canon of the Bible because that's exactly what a large percentage of the Psalms are. Lord, will you save me from these do-gooders? Lord, don't look against me in scorn. He is struggling in his walk. Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Moses declared to them, the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And as Moses clearly pointed out to them, grumbling was not a protest of leadership. It was a protest of God. Number seven, complainers are never satisfied with what they are given. I've learned this time and time again. If there's anything I learned throughout the course of my leadership is the squeaky wheel will always be the squeaky wheel. 
and you can give it and you can devote to it all the time and you could spend time on the phone with the squeaky wheel all that you want but the squeaky wheel will continue to be the squeaky wheel why unless there's life transformation in the squeaky wheel complainers are never satisfied with what they're given beginning in verse 13 we find out how god provided for israel's need so it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp and in the morning the dew lay around the camp and when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as a fine frost on the ground and so when the children of israel saw it they said to one another what is it for they did not know what it was and moses said to them this is the bread which the lord has given you to eat psalm 78 david later on thinking about what had gone on throughout the exodus writes in psalm 78 that manna is angel food angel food every morning the angels brought down this heavenly food and literally spread it before them they didn't even have to work for it they didn't have to prepare it all they had to do was eat it but they still didn't like it the manna was described as having the appearance of flakes or small round grains my manna is frosted flakes Man is actually described in Exodus 16 verse 31 as being like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. As a matter of fact, manna was such an important aspect that Jesus thought to speak of it in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, for those who conquer, I will give the hidden manna of heaven. Numbers 11, verse 5 through 6, records the feeling of the children of Israel towards this manna. Here's what they said about this angel food, about this food that God thought was so important that he thought to mention it in the book of Revelation. We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. I can dig the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. That is, they've lost their whole appetites. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. God was making provision for them, and all they could do was complain about it. You can almost hear the yuck in their voices. Even when the people of God are being fed in abundance, they grumble. Why? Because the food God provides is not what they would have preferred. We want steak. God provides bologna. We want this. God provides that. We prefer it this way. Well, if we were God, then we'd do it this way. Well, I just want to let you know something. God and his role is not taking resumes at this time. There are no applications at this moment. The position is gainfully filled, and God is gainfully employed. And there's nothing that could remove him of his throne. So you might want to stop and get those comments out of your head. Well, if I was God, well, you're not God, and you can't change the situation. Might as well learn to live in it and live joyfully in the situation. Number eight, complainers are never satisfied with how much they're given. Number seven, complainers are never satisfied with what they're given. Number eight, complainers are never satisfied with how much they're given. Verse 16, the children of Israel are given specific instructions on how to gather the manna. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. 
And then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. But some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. When you don't do something with what God has placed in your lap, then it will rot right before your eyes. Because there are key times and key moments when God is asking you to act within his will. And opportunities dissipate and do disappear. And you need to decide in your life, as we shared several weeks ago, what is the good thing and what is the best thing. Moses got angry with them over that. And having run out of food in the wilderness so that the Israelites feared that they would starve to death, one can only imagine the zeal with which they probably first harvested that first provision. They were hungry that first time. Can you imagine they were going for it? They were ready. I mean, I mean, if it was time, what Spanish people have a saying, it, that person took even the, even the nails of the cross with them. Uh, Spanish people have that saying. It means, hey, they decided to take everything with them. If they could take something and the microphone stand, they were out with it. And they were collecting manna like that. Could you imagine? Have you ever been hungry? I've been hungry. Let me tell you, I was hungry one time, and I was on my way to Carl's birthday party. Okay, and I got to the house, and there was food everywhere. And I tell you, I grabbed a plate, and I started to pig out. I was waiting patiently at first until they opened up the dish, but I grabbed my plate, and I started to pig out completely. I mean, when you're hungry, you just pack that plate. There is no regard for anything. You just come out, and you grab everything. It's like if I could have a rake to get all this manna from the floor, get me some Frosted Flakes boxes, some Kellogg's boxes, we're going to mass produce this and patent it. It's going out. Because you are hungry. Imagine that zeal that first time that they were gathering all these things. There was enough manna, it would seem, for every Israel to have every Israelite to have filled his tent. But the efforts to hoard the manna were direct disobedience to God's instructions. It would seem that Israel was guilty of two sins, greed and grumbling. Listen to this. A conservative estimate of the total number of Israelites who came out of Egypt would be 2 million people. For they had 600,000 men that were able to go out to war. Numbers chapter 1, verse 45 to 46. In Omer, in Omer, which is the amount that they were supposed to gather, was to be gathered for every one of these 2 million souls. In Omer is the equivalent of 6 pints. 12 million pints or 9,000 pounds gathered daily. 4,500 tons. Let me just put that into context for you so that you could understand what this is. Let me put it into context. Think about this. It would take 10 trains, each having 30 cars, and each having 15 tons would be needed just to carry one supply of manna. Over a million tons of manna were gathered annually by Israel. Was God not generous to them? According to verse 35, he did that for over 40 years. Over 40 years, God did that with them. And it says, and the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an uninhabited land. And they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. We've got to be grateful, friends. There's a whole lot of opportunities to complain. And guess what? Here's the sad part of all of this. The church of Jesus has been known as a grumbling bunch for too long. Particularly here in America. 
It's why sometimes people don't like to gather in churches. It's why people hate religion and organized religion. Because there's been far too much complaining and far too much grumbling. And guess what? We take to the streets with it. We're called to be light in the darkness. We're not called to be the axe that chisels away at somebody's darkness in their life. And so we confuse the two. The Bible is light. Yes, it is a sword for spiritual warfare. I love my Bible. Precious to me. Here's the problem. Some people say, well, this is a sword. And I'm going to use it to ensure that our culture is corrected from all their heathenness. No, 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 no. This is a sword for spiritual warfare. It means we've got to fight on our knees. It means we've got to fight crying before God. We cannot begin to hurt people with this word. God didn't call us to throw the whip at people. He called us to be a hospital to broken people, emotionally wounded people, that they would find rest within the comforts of the church. And we have lost that calling and that mission and that vision for the church. And we've got to restore it. How do we do that? I want to give you some practical ways to do so. You see somebody coming into the doors of the church, you've had a sucky week, you've had a bad day. Greet them genuinely. Love them, care for them. You see a new person walking in, go out of your way to walk to them and greet them and say thanks for coming and being a part of our church this morning. What's your name? Get to know them. You've seen somebody that looks like they're walking around and they've had a tough day. Put your arm around them and say, hey, you look like you're a little bit sad. Can I pray with you? Can I just encourage you? I know you may not want to hear that Jesus has it all under control. And I'm not here to tell you that, but I'm here to walk beside you just like Jesus would. I said it on Sunday night. I want to be the guy. That when people leave from walking around or hanging out with me, they say, that probably would have been what it would have been like to hang out with Jesus. Can people say that about you? Can people say that about you? Can people leave your presence and say, hey, I, I, think, I think that probably would have been like what it, what it would have been like to, to sit with Jesus. And I don't want to examine the whole story. There's a lot of spiritual connotations to the whole story of manna. And there's a lot of spiritual implications to all of this. But I want to just gather a few spiritual implications for us as I ask the worship team to come forward. Number one, it teaches us to look to God for our supply. The Israelites are told that their supply will come from heaven for you. Does that mean that we stop working? And God is going to take care of the 401k and pay into it? No. But it does mean God is your provision. And there are certain earthly constraints that we have to live within the bounds of those earthly constraints. Unfortunately, we have to take our bodies to work. Because we messed up and we failed and we let sin come into this world. And part of, part of the curse of sin is that we would now have to work from the sweat of our brow. Eat from the sweat of our brow. 
But it does mean that your provision comes from God. Number two, it teaches us to look for the Lord daily for our needs. The manna was to be gathered daily. Fresh food must be gathered every day. You cannot live on yesterday's blessing. You can't live on yesterday's promise. You can't live on the way things used to be. You need to have a fresh word daily. We cannot live today on the gathered provisions of yesterday. Dependence on God is not a yearly matter. It's not a once a year matter. It's not a once a month. It's not a once every three weeks matter. Dependence on God is a daily matter. Every day fresh problems will arise to test whether or not we will depend on God. And it teaches us to feed on Christ as the only secret of strength and blessedness. The Lord himself founded a sermon on this story. John chapter 6, verse 22 to 58. And in this great story, Jesus not only fed the 5,000 to provide for the physical needs, but he used it as a picture to present to them their spiritual needs. He uses a play on words, actually, and you'd lose this if, if we didn't understand the original language. He uses a play on words to draw them back to the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. Here, God provided bread from heaven. And here's the cool part. Jesus actually refers to himself as the bread from heaven. You know why we take communion? Communion is a symbol of the manna from heaven. Why does it look the way it does? It's a symbol of the manna from heaven. Jesus declared himself to be the manna from heaven. So when Jesus comes out and says in the book of Revelation, for those of you who are faithful to the end, I will give you the hidden manna of heaven. You know what Jesus is saying? He says, if you're faithful to the end, I'm going to give you all of myself. All of who I am. All of Jesus. He is the bread of heaven, not just to meet their physical needs but to give them eternal life. Friends, have you been stuck in a state of complaint? Have you decided to camp out in the land of grumbling? It's easy to get stuck there. Especially when seasons in your life are not going really well. But I'm going to tell you here today, you better take that little car that you're driving and put that thing in drive and get out of there. God didn't want you to park there. He wants you to move past that grumbling and that complaining. That is a spirit. And if you don't exercise, get that spirit out of you, then it will consume every part of your life. And let me tell you something. I've been a witness to older folks. I've been to funerals before where folks are very well known for their grumbling and their complaining lifestyle and for how they lead their life. And guess what? They end up dying in a dark room by themselves. And that's not so much the issue as much as when you go to the funeral home, it's very evident how much they were well liked by the lack of people that even decide to go to show them respect. 
want to end your life alone without relationships because you've pushed people away because all you do is complain all the time be grateful be grateful God has done great things in your life check your pulse are you alive he's doing something good right now you got a place to sleep in tonight he's done something good it may not be the mansion that you've dreamed them or that you've been praying for but God didn't promise you the mansion and the Bentley he promised you daily provision tell you something I had to live in my mother-in-law's house for an entire year amen God bless me guess what it may not have been the best of circumstances for me and my family but was God still faithful did he still provide did I still have a bed to go to did I still have relationships that I can have did I still get to love my wife and raise my daughter did I still did my daughter get to enjoy and have a special connection with her grandmother yes were my was my daughter able to be close to my parents that we were able to drive by there yes there's blessing there's hidden blessing in even the, 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 the worst of circumstances our perception is what needs to shift and change I want you to rise to your feet this morning. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that the joy of the Holy Spirit would overwhelm you. That you would leave out of this place singing a Mary Poppins song and dancing with penguins. Be happy. Be joyful. Don't let the world overwhelm you. Because he is our eternal peace. Father, I pray over your church. Lord, we don't want to be grumblers. We don't want to be complainers. We don't want to settle down in a spirit of complaint, God. We don't want to settle down in a spirit of judgment. God, would you just remove that spirit from us? Lord, that we would just trust you, God. Let's be happy in this, Lord Jesus. Maybe life hasn't turned out the way that we wanted, but we're not you. We don't see the larger picture. We don't see the greater thing, Lord, but you do. Let us rest in you. Let us rest in the fact that you have all things under the palm of your hand, Lord Jesus. Father, would you give us a spirit of joy? Lord, that we would smile and laugh, God, that you would just cause an overwhelming spirit of joy to come upon us, Lord Jesus, this morning, God. Even as we're worshiping, would you cause a smile to come on our face this morning, God? We don't have it all together. We're not always emotionally healthy, but would you grant us just a piece of that manna from heaven this morning? Lord, that we would be well satisfied in who you are, Lord Jesus, and not complain. There's so much to complain about, but even greater are the things to be grateful for. Father, we exalt your name. Lord, as we worship, would you begin to just remove that spirit and grant us a spirit of joy. We praise you, Jesus.